Hello and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, this is Dale, uh, the Christian or Seeker, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And I just wanted to post up uh, an edited version of a 4A episode I was on uh, with my professor, Paul, uh, Paul Bali. And um, yeah, we had a great show. We started discussing topics from freedom of expression uh, up and including uh, science and its relationship to philosophy and then having a final section about uh, religion and religious knowledge and how philosophy relates to coming to religious wisdom and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, thank you very much to Andrew and Matt for having, for allowing me to come on as a guest on the show and bringing my professor Paul on. Enjoy the show guys. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask an Atheist Anything. This is the English one, Matthew, with my usual co-host, Andrew. Say hello to our lovely listeners, Andrew. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We've got two guests uh, today. One of the guests will be familiar to many of our listeners, Dale. Hello, Dale. Welcome back. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me back on. And uh, you've managed to pull us to a decent guest for us uh, to join on the show today is uh, Paul. Hello, Paul. Please introduce yourself. Oh, hey, hey guys. Uh, really nice to be here. Thank you, Paul. And tell us a little bit about yourself so that uh, people know know who you are and what you're about. Sure. Uh, I guess uh, the most uh, immediate relevant detail is I was um, <clears throat> Dale's teacher. I guess technically still am <laughs> um, yeah. at, at, uh, um, at uh, university here. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, I've, I've been teaching philosophy here for uh you know, about 15 years now. My background is definitely in, uh, in academic philosophy. I guess. Ooh, tell us more about that. Tell us, tell us about the uh, your academic background in philosophy. I love it. Yeah, um, for, for sure. Um, I guess, um, like a lot of people, I, I discovered philosophy in in university. Um, I, mean, I, I knew it was out there. I think I knew in high school I was gravitating towards something humanities. Focused, and then once I took philosophy in university, I realized that was my home discipline, which seemed to give freedom to really ask ask big questions. And so I've, I've kind of uh, philosophy all my life since taking those first courses. In graduate school, I ended up focusing a little bit in philosophy of religion, though in this weird uh, kind of uh, middle area, elements of what's what's called you know analytic philosophy of religion, which uh, We'll all be familiar with, I think, especially Dale, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, elements of sort of more the continental French-German phenomenological tradition. My my graduate work ended up focusing a bit on, as you call it, the, the epistemology of mystical experience, certainty, possibility of certainty through through special, intense mystic type experiences. And there's a sort of comparative element in that. Not that I'm a scholar of History of religions, but there, you know, almost as case studies, I looked at uh, Saint Teresa of Avila, some of her reports, and then from the east, I looked at some of uh, Shankara's uh, reports. Unitive mystical experience. Anyway, that's my that's my uh, background uh, leading up to my teaching vocation, um, and uh, pretty soon after I got out of my my doctoral program, I landed some, uh, you know. Contract type work here at a. Are we naming the university? Uh, yeah, that, that's fine if you that's want. That's fine. Okay, everything's fine. Yeah, um, um, here at here at Ryerson, uh, I started teaching back in. Oh, I guess it was around 2005. Well, thank you, um, thank you, 
for joining us on really what is a, a pretty small podcast. And, you know, we, we grow a little each week. Um, so uh, the truth is that you're probably uh, more talented than we deserve. But uh, thank, you, <laughs> thank, you, thank, you for, thank you for joining us anyway. Don't don't say that. Um, I've, I've been listening to a bit of a bit of your archive, um, and uh, the, the level of conversation is uh, really impressive. I'm honored to be on it. Oh, thank well, you, Paul. I appreciate that. We're honored to have you. So I've, I've got to say something. Uh, got to say something about Dale. So usually this is where uh, this is where two friends uh, sort of poke fun at each other, right? But I'm guessing that Dale was actually a, uh, quite a good student. Right. I, I, I wanted to say more about that, actually. Yeah, that uh, D- Dale stood out pretty quickly uh, in the first course he took uh, with me, which was as a special student, you know, as someone who really was you know, more like a peer. Yeah, yeah, I was saying, in fact, I, I took advantage of Dale <laughs> in, in the most recent course, the second course you've been taking with me, which is it's, it's sort of an intro to philosophy course focused on problems. And I got Dale to really co-teach a class. Oh, very nice. Um, we did kind of a podcast style conversation that's uh in, in fact i'll tell you that I, I don't know if Dale would, would say this for himself but he was he was happy enough about that interaction I, I dale i don't i don't remember where you said something about it maybe it was on one of the forums that we that we participated in or, or whatever but uh, i'll say that from the casual reader's perspective that seemed like an important moment for you dale yeah absolutely I, so as, as paul knows i i've had no experience really sort of uh, speaking in front of a large group about these things in a live audience. Obviously, I've had experience podcasting, but that that's sort of different in my opinion. So, yeah, I was really grateful that Paul gave me the opportunity to to do that. And I thought I thought it went great. I was just really thankful that he gave me that opportunity. So, yeah, th- thank you very much for that, Paul. No, oh, that was that was, went really well. Dale uh, did a great job. I think students really liked having him up there and having. Him his angle and his clarity. Yeah. It's also great for them to see sort of one of their own, you know, like from their side of the room, yeah. um, get up to the front and perform at that level. It, um, it, um, we had a, as usual with, with uh, asking atheist anything, I think the listeners know that we send around notes ahead of time, agree on format and, and topic and that sort of thing. Matthew, is it, is it time for us to, um, yeah, let's to do that. Let's do that. Okay. All right. So, I was I was sort of designated to introduce the, the first topic here, so I guess I will. One of the things that became apparent when we were uh, sharing emails in the run-up uh, to this show was we've all had some um, some rocky experiences with uh, with self-expression of our worldviews, right? And the 4A listeners will be aware of Dale's experience. Uh, over on the Unbelievable Boards and and in other podcasts. So, they, Dale, you were on The Smalley Show and on Right to Reason, right? I don't know if there are others at this point other than Skip and Sleepers. There have been uh, some very vocal oppositions to your right to uh, tell your story from your perspective, mm-hmm. right? And and in fact, there is a there's a particular person, and I, I, I don't I don't think it's worth calling attention to who it is because I don't, I don't really want people to seek that out. Right. But yeah. you've actually sort of got an internet stalker to, to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll tell you that Matthew and I offered that person that I'm, that I'm deliberately not naming. We offered that person an opportunity to come on 
to 4A, just like the four of us are here, and to uh, to tell the story about why that individual is, in my view, acting in, in quite a, uh, being quite, um, almost persecuting, if I'm being honest. And the threats have, have gone pretty deep. The, the threats have gone uh, as far as to, um, uh, to sort of report your views to the university administration. And by the way, I think it's uh, quite a brave act on on both of your parts to be able to say what university you're associated with, given, uh, you know, given that sort of dust up. But, and, and then Paul, you've got, you've got your experience um, teaching and uh, what has happened with, you know, you're sharing your views, right? And, and maybe we'll get into some of that. I will tell you that I only just came out as an atheist last weekend to the rest of my family. There are lots of people that I couldn't come out to for fear of, of loss of community. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I may tell the story here in a minute. Um, and I, I think Matthews, uh, you know, has in the past, although I think Matthew's completely out now. Uh, so, Matthew, maybe you need to tell your story about whether you've had any experiences about not being able to freely express yourself. But I hoped to take a minute uh, in, in warm up for our other more philosophical topics to talk about the right to freedom of expression and, and why it's important, um, because we've got it. We've got at least two different moral views represented here. We've got a, a theistic view and a non-theistic view, but I don't think we all four share all of the aspects of any one of those views, right? So we've got four opinions here, and we've all experienced some level of uh, some level of pushback in terms of freedom of speech. And, and so I hope to talk about that because I think that it's a, a big issue facing both of our groups right now. So, okay, there's the grenade. Who wants to jump on it? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing that I, I would say uh, on, on that subject is um, mostly we're, I think we're aiming to discuss uh, philosophy here. And, um, but, and, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't, isn't the whole point of philosophy to have the freedom to discuss anything and everything so you see which ideas bubble to the top? So if there are, if there are segments of ideas which are deemed so tasteful that you're not allowed to go there, doesn't that cut off some of the benefits that philosophy and philosophical discussion gives us as a society? Yeah, that's, that's the way I increasingly think about how to define philosophy, uh, just um, sort of operation as a, a very free playroom for ideas. That means not just the freedom to talk about ideas that might be offensive, but just more epistemically freedom to talk about very speculative ideas, um, the freedom to, to dwell uh, impractically on, on foundational questions and sciences. Um, but, but certainly that includes the freedom to, you know, especially in the hypothetical mode. If not in philosophy, then where? So, Dale, do you want to talk at all about, about what has happened in, in your ability to express yourself and the sort of attention? It, by the way, this is a, there's no compulsory reason for you to do so. If you want to avoid, uh, if you want to avoid this or not talk about it, I don't want to cast it negatively by, you know, avoidance here isn't uh, isn't an accusation. If it's something that you'd rather not discuss, we can put a period on it here, and and we can move on and let Matthew introduce, uh, introduce the next the next idea. No, uh, no, I'm I'm happy to 
share my experience. I, I know um, before we, we did this, um, I was sort of hesitant just in light of the threat that, you know, a secular university could find out and, and that could have real consequences. But um, at the end of the day, I, I truly believe in free speech. And also, additionally, as a Christian, I, I think it's really important to get out there and, and share these ideas because people's salvation is, is at stake. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to sort of give my take on free speech and, and not censor myself because I, I agree 100% with Matt and with what Paul said, you know, especially with philosophy. We get out there, we get into the controversial ideas, we, you know, we aren't afraid to tackle any issue, no matter how tough or offensive it might be. So, yeah, I think the the benefits of being willing to engage in that are worth the costs or potential costs um, in, in that regard. So when it comes to free speech, I very much stress a, a, an open hand in dialogue. I'm very, I don't want there to be any restrictions. I think it's ridiculous that, you know, that, just because I have this opinion, there is a possibility that I could not achieve my career goals or something like that. Like, I think that's getting a bit too, it's getting stupid, I, I think, right? So I, I agree with the way our laws are, are on the books right now. Sure, there are some restrictions, like if you're advocating for violence to hurt someone or, or to harm someone, like a, a financial threat or something like that. But apart from that, just sharing our ideas and our fundamental beliefs in, in a honest, sincere dialogue, there, there shouldn't be any restrictions on that sort of thing. So yeah, that, that's sort of my fundamental view on this. One of the things that I think we've all, uh, that we've all suffered, and the reason, the reason I even bring this up is uh, we have all uh, either had the threat of or actually suffered some loss of, uh, uh, at minimum, some loss of community and, uh, and, Maybe in Paul's case, some financial repercussions from from just open sharing of personal opinion. When when those things don't actually impinge on anyone else's rights or freedoms to practice their own lives, uh, or or to you know to engage in whatever uh, whatever form of lifestyle they want to engage in, right? So um, this has been a big issue in the in the news. It's a uh, you know. Uh, we need to do a better job about letting people speak and being willing to uh, being willing to integrate new ideas and and so hopefully uh, hopefully that's good enough warm up Matthew if you want to round that off and and uh, head into our first topic of philosophy there's a question I'd like to ask on this area of uh, of free speech I have my own opinion here and it'll be interesting to see how your other opinions uh, align with mine. I, I'm all for the exchange of of ideas, especially ideas that we are uncomfortable with, because if we're not challenged by an idea that makes us uncomfortable, we don't we we lose the opportunity to to grow in our character and to test our own positions. But I think there's a line between ideas which we don't like we might even find distasteful and speech which I, I will say hate speech and I I would say that hateful rhetoric uh, hateful speech which gets into the area of um, encouraging people to to be to, to be criminal uh, for lack of a better description I would say that that kind of talk doesn't uh, isn't 
part of philosophy and that in my feeling that you no know, philosophical free speech should be encouraged but that that encouragement doesn't include what i've just described where people are just um to to use a vernacular hating on people uh, and uh, encouraging criminality because you just don't like a particular group that's not engaging in philosophical free speech that's just being a dick <laughs> a little bit tricky i mean i i think the, the basic distinction that uh, matthew makes is is important and i I, w- I would guess most people accept some version of that distinction but of course the, you know where to draw the line is where it gets um yeah virtual and i suppose i mean just to push back a little bit at that or to, or maybe to to make a further distinction i guess sometimes something like hate if not the actual um intense emotion then then the behavior which might follow from that um, emotion could be justified right so um uh, you might be targeting a particular group for for justifiable reasons and the hate might be i, mean, I don't want to just hate exactly but it, i mean hate hate as, as, as like a very intense negative evaluation of a person or a group of people could could in principle justify and it, it could call for certain action so from from your you know negative um justified uh, assessment of a person or a group of people you could advocate certain views i mean countries do that all the time when they call for going to war i mean every yeah military sure. rally or parade in a way is a kind of active hate speech by some definition mm. uh, which is is leading up very clearly to to violent action so where is the um where is the line so this is sort of what I was hoping to get into, uh, and maybe we won't spend too long here, but where is the line between someone says something? So Dale, uh, is it, uh, do you feel safe with me talking about the test? Oh, yeah. I, I, Paul, okay. Paul's well aware of it. He, he's listened to the podcast and that sort of thing. So yeah, okay. go. All right. So, so the specific issue with Dale, as some of the listeners will know, but, but some won't, is, um, is Dale has answered in the affirmative to something that is properly, uh, po- popularly known, uh, as the Abraham test. So Dale has, has said that under the right conditions, which is, uh, justified true belief that, uh, that there is a morally perfect God, uh, giving him a command to kill a child, even, even if the child was his own. Dale has said that he would, uh, take the act. Uh, or, or take the, the command and, uh, and act to kill his child under those conditions, right? Under the conditions that there's a, uh, a properly basic or justified belief that a morally perfect God is, uh, insisting that that act be carried out. Dale, is that a, uh, is that an accurate paraphrase of, of your yeah. position? Uh, yeah, more or less. Like, a, I would say, uh, yeah, if, if on the condition that I have one, a 100% warranted true belief, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to come through a properly basic belief, but that's just the only feasible way that I, I can think of that it would come to me. Like it wouldn't come through the means of reading a Bible verse or or my preacher claims to be a prophet or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, as, as long as I have 100% knowledge through whatever means um, that a morally perfect God is telling me to do it, then yeah, my, my answer is absolutely yes on that front. And as as Val uh, said in the boards, there it, it's a tautology at that point. It, it shouldn't be sure. controversial, right? But, but yeah, right. So, but but this uh, this kind of statement moves us pretty close to the thing that sort of 
uh, activates the emotion in people, right? So that's that's sort of why you've got an internet stalker <laughs> running, running around, uh, running around threatening your future, right? Um, I hold your future in my hands, and you've got to stop saying this particular thing, right? Yeah. And so, uh, when when have we crossed the line? Uh, so so Paul drew a distinction here. I think it's a good distinction, right? There there is a point uh, at which we say this far and no farther, and, and in fact, as as countries and nations and states. Um, we're even willing to, you know, to take military action, right? But, but where is that? Where's that line? It's sort of an interesting line. I don't know if we'll find exactly where it is here. Um, but I will say that Dale, in your case, I don't think we've, I don't think we've crossed that line. And, um, I have said to the person in question, uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> this is sort of where our conversation ended. Uh, I said to this person, uh, that in your case, uh, where where it would have to be hundred percent certainty, I would I would act to take another person's life under circumstances that were much less than a hundred percent certain. Yeah. Um, so, say in the case of, of an intruder, right? And and so I I I don't think that you're uh, you know I don't think you being chased around over this thing is per, is particularly just. Uh, but it is interesting to ponder the idea of when is it just to you know to go on the, uh, to take the affirmative action and try to, uh, to stop someone. And I'm just not sure that it's anywhere around, you know, the sort of speech that we're talking about, right? No one's yelling fire in, in a public theater here. Yeah. Right. So, so Paul, when, when do we cross the line? When, 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 it, when is it okay uh, are there a set of rules or guidelines, principles or precepts in philosophy that say, you know, after a certain set of conditions are met, then it's okay for us to become activists against a person or group? I don't, I don't have a clear sense of, of, you know, the principle underlying the distinction here. I, I, if I reflect on my practice, I think I'm like a lot of people spurred to uh, defensive reaction to action, and I, I give a pretty wide uh, berth for speech acts. So, um, but of course the question here is, when are, when are we worrying that the speech act is now, um, you know, causally um, rolling over into some, some action or some predictable action? Mm. Um, I'm not sure, but... It's, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't have an answer. Fair let, enough. Let's, let me, or sorry, Andrew, you guys show, but I was just going to ask you, you a question, Andrew, if that's, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. It's, it's um, an open show, man. You've got the mic. Okay. All right, cool. Thanks. Um, so, so what, what is wrong with minimally? So I, I like Paul's answer. Actually, he gave me something I hadn't considered uh, about the wartime context. And I think he's absolutely right that just making a blanket statement, that speech that leads to violence, uh, isn't necessarily wrong if it's in a wartime context, but mm. say just in a normal, what I had in mind was sort of like a normal civil context of living as a citizen. If you're advocating someone to cause harm to someone that, in an immoral way that breaks a law or something like that, like such as trying to tell people, um, you know, Jew, Jews are all bad people, you should fraud them, or all white people are evil, therefore you should go and beat them up or something like that. Um, we can we can at least recognize certain instances, even if we don't have a broad, necessary and sufficient set of conditions to, to adjudicate every single matter, 
would you at least admit there are certain instances where where we can say it's clear this should be censored versus this shouldn't or yeah. well that's interesting so i've i've written a lot about this as some of the listeners will know matthew and i wrote a book that we open sourced right because because we really believe that ideas should be open and uh, and and have equal access i know we we have to uh, be aware of that and i'm, I'm not criticizing capitalism implicitly by saying that ideas should be freely shared or whatever. My personal rule in life, in, insofar as it is possible for me to act, uh, now, I'm, now I'm going to make a sort of philosophical statement, Paul, feel, feel free to, to, to re-engage, but my personal view uh, about life really is, first of all, do no harm. Mm-hmm. That is, um, and, and so maybe that doesn't always come across in, uh, in my conversations, right? But uh, I, I really, I really try to engage uh, in, in so much as, uh, as my emotional context will let me, because, you know, I've got plenty of emotions about all kinds of ideas, but in so much as I can, I really try to engage every idea with its greatest possible philosophical charity. And so I honestly don't know, in, in terms of freedom of speech, where I would curtail someone's right. For me, it almost always involves a call to violence, that, that is, or, or a violent act of itself, right? Then, then we're past, first of all, do no harm, right? Because there are other issues at stake. But I don't have, as far as I'm aware, much of a boundary about freedom of speech. I let people express themselves almost however they want. Okay. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah, th- thanks. Thanks for answering that. Yeah. Okay. So Paul, unless you, unless you want to tell me where I've gone philosophically wrong with that, cause I'm, I'm willing to. No, I'm no. Willing. So Matthew, um, do you want to round that off or is it time to round it off and, and move on to the first actual. Yeah. I don't know. Issue? I, I don't know what to say about, about rounding off. I, I think we, we, we did that 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 quite well you know that that boundary is clearly a challenge it's more of a a wide gray area than a than a thin blue line so I'll, I'll i'll just leave it at that because anything else i'll say will <laughs> will confuse rather than clarify <laughs> yeah i'm afraid that i'm afraid the, the whole topic was a little more confusing than i would have hoped that it was going to be so so there we are well, then that gives philosophers more to talk about. So let, let's embrace that. <laughs> <laughs> you know. All right. um, moving on was uh, the, the next section was um, limits of scientific knowledge. Mm. And uh, now I'll, I'll I'll wave my flag here. I'm far more of a embracer of scientifically objective, and I I have been guilty in the past of um, probably unfairly disparaging philosophical endeavors especially around trying to find out uh, what's true i'm very much a, a science worshiper in, in that sort of thing and have had the label of scientism aimed at me in a, in a not in a complimentary way on multiple occasions so anyway so where do science and philosophy meet and uh, w- what's the best way of the two of them meeting in a way that that helps us uh, in in general and this is often where religion and uh, philosophy of religion probably comes into into play and where it butts up against uh, scientific claims and where they clash so who wants to talk about this more i think we should let paul uh he's he's the the main guest but yeah let, let paul i know he's got a lot of good things to say so yeah 
I, you know, I there's this question. I, I don't have a ready answer for it, but um, I, I think it's worth, uh, without getting too lost in the, you know, um, I'm going to point out that the, the, the word philosophy has a history. And if we're asking about, you know, the, the, the line between scientific methodology and philosophical approaches to finding out what's true, I, you know, the question is maybe obscured by our, our, our modern situation where we have a philosophy department and then we have a faculty of sciences with, with various subdivisions. And it gets it gets complicated and, and maybe instructively complicated. If you just wind the clock back a few centuries. Uh, I mean, we can go back to Newton and, and notice that Newton would have self-identified as a, as a natural philosopher, right? Mm. So philosophy in some broadened sense, uh, hopefully not excessively broadened to the point of meaningless, uh, is, is the love of wisdom. Um, and so anything which is aimed at truth, useful truth, important truth, is philosophical. And by some broadened sense of the scientific method, too, I think, I mean, I don't think there is the scientific method. I, there, um, um, I mean, there is method, right? So what will distinguish science from maybe... Um, more casual approaches to truth finding is is the insistence on a clarified, um, consistently applied, uh, repeatable method. That's maybe the meta meta rule of the scientific that there should be a method. And uh, so when you start to think at that level of generality for both philosophy and science, they start to blend together a little bit. And and so the historical fact that they come from the same origins and we're, we're often the same people. But if you go back to Aristotle, that's what's he, did, he wasn't a, a philosopher Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then a natural scientist Thursday and Friday, exactly. I don't think. I think they were all part of an interconnected search for the, the truth. So that, uh, so the listeners will probably know the question that I'm going to ask. Um, so in your view, then, one of the, one of the things that the sort of scientific method is pinned to, they're almost interchangeable, is, is, uh, is this idea of empiricism. As a philosopher, how do you feel about empiricism? Is it so? As, uh, as atheists, we, we very often say, you know, in, in empirical methods are our most uh, most successful methods of, of determining what is true about our world. So that sort of leaves a, you know, what do we mean by true, right? Because empirical methods definitely tell us something about the world. You know, how, how far can an airplane fly on a tank of fuel, right? We um, so they're, they're empirical methods of investigation there. But is there something from a philosophical perspective about uh, empirical investigation that goes lacking in your view? Because you talked about phenomenological investigation you know, when, when, when you were in school and, and, and working through your Ph.D. program. So yeah. what are we leaving out as atheists? Uh, Dale, I'm, I'm setting you up for, for an intro here. So <laughs> what, what are we leaving out if we are? With empirical methods that that philosophy addresses. Uh, these are these are great questions. Meaning, I'm not sure where to begin. Um, you know, you mentioned phenomenology, which um, seems to be one of these useful, almost unavoidable terms. But it's hard to uh, give a great definition of the word existential. You know, it's, mm-hmm. we find ourselves using it, but loath to define it. Phenomenology. I mean, if, if it is if it is philosophy, and maybe that's debatable, continuous with with what I would call empiricism. I mean, 
Empiricism is just tr- training the cognitive faculties at, at what's happening. Uh, put it sure. And I, I guess in phenomenology, there's this, um, I mean, there's some maybe method- methodological presuppositions uh, about how to characterize, at least at least for methodological reasons, that aiming, but it, it's still tra- training the faculties on experience you know, real time. Hopefully, deriving some some important truths or wisdom. You know, the the question of of what maybe I could put the question that what can philosophy, as it's currently practiced, add to the empirical method as refined and what we today identify as the science. Thank you for reaching inside my head and being able to pull that out in a second. So yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, What does philosophy provide beyond empiricism? There's a way of doing uh, the history of 20th century philosophy, certainly. 20th century academic philosophy as a series of responses to this critical question, a series of crises even, 20th century philosophy being the century of philosophy's humbling, you know, where a lot of philosophers in the English-speaking analytic tradition increasingly saw philosophy's role as just being sort of this assistant to the empirical sciences, helping to clarify terminology at the foundations of the empirical sciences sort of being this, this, I think the term was handmaiden to, to the sciences. Uh, so that's, we know that's, so philosophy itself has, uh, I mean, one of the answers philosophy itself gives officially to this um, pointed question is, uh, yeah, in a way, philosophy has some distinct techniques to help in the pursuit of knowledge, but they're techniques of maybe clarification. So, so I'll go ahead and go on the record, because I, I am one of those empiricists, right? I'm one of those, one of those hard naturalists, right? Uh, I guess I'm a practical naturalist in the sense that there may be something outside what we can perceive, but if there is, I don't, I don't know how we can get at it, right? So, uh, maybe, maybe sort of a practical naturalist in that sense, but, but I don't, um, I don't think that we would be where we are today without, uh, philosophy's ability to, uh, exercise. Our abstract thoughts and to uh, sort of group and create meta questions around uh, whatever we experience, right? Whatever, whatever we see. So, so I wasn't suggesting when I was asking about what philosophy provides beyond empiricism, I wasn't implying that I think philosophy is uh, somehow not a useful pursuit because I actually see it exactly the other way around. I actually think philosophy uh, is an incredibly important pursuit. Uh, and perhaps we only get to empiricism uh, once philosophy helps us ask a certain kind of question. Uh, I don't. I don't know that that's. I don't know that that's the case. But um, certainly, we can't answer all the questions that we would like to ask without some ability toward abstract reasoning. And, so. and uh, if you if you don't mind me asking um, a question, even as a guest, but but for Paul, I want you to. Okay. Um, so so Paul, what one of the things that you taught me in taught us in our last course was sort of about the the two different types of limits that science has uh that you know mm. practical versus in principle limits um did you maybe want to sort of explain about that at all that, that might help yeah um i mean that that is a, a useful distinction i suppose um uh, but I, I think i think the point would apply uh across all um forms of seeking I mean, some some version of that distinction uh, in practice limitations and then in principle limitations, right? So um, the practical limitations of any knowledge seeking would just be um, limitations due to the capabilities, for example, of the uh, seeker. 
so um, brain power, <laughs> human brain power um, available to the scientists or the philosophers seeking knowledge. Um, there could be uh, uh, maybe less stringent practical limitations, just like um, um, practical interest or um, funding type uh, limitations. So uh, if, if we could uh, rouse public interest and uh, focus funding on a particular problem, uh, we could solve that problem, but practically uh, we would never get enough um, funding directed to our particular pet problem. So that, those, those would be examples of practical limitations. These are limits that could be overcome if certain, I guess, empirical um, facts were a little bit different, and we can we can easily imagine the way those facts would be. The principal limitations are maybe harder to talk about and even to articulate, but th these would be very deep limitations in the very enterprise of seeking knowledge. Um, so what, you know, one, one example might be if, if, if you think there are uh, regress problems haunting many, many um, attempts to get at what's true, so that for every answer offered to a proposed question, a further question can be proposed, right? That uh, an explanation is always in terms, it's a kind of equation where the thing to be explained is cashed out in terms of some second thing, and then that logically, just by the very nature of that structure of explanation, leaves open the possibility of a follow-up question where we can ask, well, what explains that, that second thing? So there, there are these regress problems that haunt knowledge enterprises. Those, those might, I mean, those are arguable principled limitations on finding out the truth. And uh, I mean, I think we do find, I mean, every kid, when they first hear about the Big Bang theory, for example, I, a lot of kids ask an excellent question, which what caused the, you know, the singularity? You know, the, the thing that banged, what caused that thing? Where did that thing come from? And what was there before that? And and you can, you can, there might be deep reasons to rule that question out in principle. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, I think often that question is ruled out for practical reasons. We want to focus our research program a little bit on the interesting thing that happened after the bang, which is the universe and what we know is reality. And uh, uh, there are deep, deep practical so deep that they almost bleed into what seems like in principle limitations on our ability to get at what happened before that singularity, how the, how the singularity got there. Um, anyway, the, 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 the kid is aware that in, you know, naturalistically explaining our universe in terms of a long chain of causes and effects that go back to this positive first cause, the, the, the Big Bang, um, that, that by its very nature, uh, leaves logical space for a follow-up question, which is, okay, you, you've cashed it all, it all out in terms of this first event, and that let, leaves open the possibility to ask what, what caused that. So that, you know, if there is this kind of regress problem haunting all explanation, that, that might be an example of an in-principle limitation on knowledge seeking. But again, these regresses haunt not just the sciences, but I think a lot of the texts. Yeah, and I think that sort of speaks to Andrew's question about scientism sort of thing, right? That, that there are inherent limits to the to the scientific method. And it, this sort of relates to the original, like how does philosophy and science relate to each other? And on that front, there, there's two principal views. There's a, an internal philosophy of science versus an external philosophy of science. Um, so obviously I, I hold the latter. I, I think Andrew and Matt would probably be hold the former, but um, I just, did you maybe want to sort of explain what that, what's that, what that is about there, Paul, and 
where you stand on that front and yeah, it's relevance to the, to the limits of science. Yeah. So, um, so by, by internal, just to, just to clarify, that's the view that, um, science methodology can be internally justified, hopefully without any kind of, um, yeah, it, ju it justifies itself and philosophy is really uses to a branch of science. So, you know, yeah, like science, science justifies itself internally and, Whereas external philosophy of science is kind of like philosophy stands over and above science and it justifies the logical underpinnings of the scientific method. So just to, there's three things. So number one, an external philosophy of science recognizes that claims about reality and knowledge within science already presuppose that there is knowledge and reality in the first place. Two, that scientific assertions that some proposition are true or rational must conform to and not conflict with general features uh, that we already know about logic and rationality. And then three, philosophy is primarily a normative discipline and science is merely a descriptive discipline. I don't know if that helps, but that, that's sort of what I was getting at for you to speak on there. Wouldn't uh, science have a normative element too insofar as it's aimed at the truth? That seems right to me, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that uh, Dale. If you'll reread number one, I think I, I think there's something wrong with sort of the way that works. So, so science works on already presupposing that there is knowledge and reality in this place. So that yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not so sure that that would have to be the case. Um, we might teach it that way, um, but if if I um, if I didn't know anything about the scientific method, and and I don't necessarily have to be presupposing uh, that that knowledge can be had, but uh, if if through observation uh, I discover um, uh, that water runs downhill, uh, as for instance, uh, I don't think I necessarily have to presuppose that the that the scientific method um, depends on some knowledge value. I think my observations are, are okay to, to bootstrap the idea of knowledge without presupposing the idea of knowledge. Okay. Okay. And, and in terms of like Paul as, as the guest, you, do you agree with that or do, do you see any, do you see logic as sort of undergirding the scientific method, sort of justifying how the scientific method works, or yeah, do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, I'm interested, Paul. Tell me, tell yeah. me where yeah. I went philosophically awry. No, I don't know about that. Uh, my first reaction is to say, doesn't doesn't logic undergird everything? It's it's sort of um, in in logic we're articulating. Mm. I guess ideally we're articulating the um, necessary structure of anything that is, um, and so that would in 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 some sense undergird everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, but but it still might be that uh, um, philosophy, as currently named, logic has been part of the philosopher's sort of specialty. You know that there might be partly historic, historically contingent reasons for that. I remember, I mean, I think the first course I ever taught was Intro to Symbolic Logic back in two thousand three or four, and I remember there were quite a few comp sci students taking it, and for them it was all. Um, Almost just a rehashing of stuff they had learned in first year with a slightly different, maybe, set of symbols. And I was one of those geeky comp sci uh, students. <laughs> Irving M. Copey's um, Symbolic Logic. Go, that's, that's one, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a classic. And uh, so, I, you know, philosophy's 
claim to logic as one of its um, sub-disciplines or arch-disciplines, I guess, is um, at least questionable to me. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, again, philosophers do typically have some training in that, but, but you know, a lot of people get PhDs in philosophy without ever taking symbolic logic or even informal logic. Um, I was wondering if that was a thing, actually. Yeah. Some, some programs make it a, um, you know, requirement. PhD programs will require that the student has taken the equivalent of maybe an undergraduate course in symbolic logic hmm. or, or demonstrated competence in it. Anyway, I'll, I'll just stop, stop there. Um, I, I hope I'm not just um, <laughs> making my, uh, my vocation uh, useless the more I talk here. But uh, I, I don't think so. I'm committed I've... to philosophy's uh, special contribution, but... But it is, I, I admit, it is hard to articulate it in response to the question. I think it is, it is interesting. Philosophy is maybe a discipline more than any um, that has self, self-questioning at its very heart, right? So, um, you know, the view that maybe philosophy is, is just an assistant to science at best, that, that's um, a common philosophical view, as I mentioned. So, so self-questioning about philosophy's value is central to the very, uh, very Okay, if I could go back and not ask that question, I would go back and and not ask that question because I, I don't want to diminish the value of the conversation or even to be perceived as diminishing the value of the conversation because, uh, and, and maybe it's just that um, philosophy is sort of a pet of mine. So, <laughs> uh, and and I really want to have, uh, maybe, maybe even if we have to have it off mic, I really want to ask uh, about uh, platonic forms at some point. I don't think we have. I don't think we have room for it in this conversation. But um, you you talked about symbolic logic, and you know you don't you don't get out of sort of chapter two of the textbook before you uh, before you come across um, um, you know identity non contradiction and the excluded middle, right? The the our, our three sort of basic laws of, of logic, right? We get the pretty early on, and and so. I guess my question to you, because because you've thought about these things, and, and perhaps in in deeper and and more expansive ways than I have, um, because I only use them as a means to an end, um, can we get those laws through observation, or are those laws um, somehow uh, imprinted? Right. Is is that sort of the written into the fabric of the universe or do we just get these things observationally? You see what I mean? What this sort of appeals to the question about about the basis of science is science internally consistent or is the is the, are those laws intrinsic or extrinsic? Did, did anyone else want to? Um, so yeah, for, for my for my take, I, I me and Paul actually discussed this in the in the class that we co-teached a little bit. It was, oh, in, really? it was in the context of uh, numbers, mm-hmm. um, abstract. So that kind of links it to the platonic forms, I guess. Um, but yeah, I view, and I could be wrong, I, my understanding of Paul is that we view it sort of, ex- they're extrinsically. We don't derive it just scientifically, like ops in a scientific, using the scientific method or that sort of thing. They're, you know, just descriptive facts about the the universe i i think that they're they are extrinsic so i would say that they're necessary truths that they cannot be false um they obtain in 
they're true in every single logically possible world. You can't violate the law of non-contradiction. One plus one will always equal two in, in every world. So, so yeah, I, as far as I understand what your question is, they're, they're extrinsic and impose themselves on the world. It's sort of like a top down as opposed to bottom up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I want to see if I'm right. If, if, uh, I think Paul will answer the same way, but let's let's see. Let's not let's not assume. Yeah, my my intuitions go go the same way as Dale's. Um, well, I think Dale and I disagreed about whether you know they needed to be ultimately couched in the mind of a of a capital knower, which which for Dale would be. I think I agree with Dale that uh, these are necessary, universal, true in all possible worlds truths. These these logical truths that uh, Andrew articulated. Uh, but uh, I think I think I differ from Dale in, in, in the theological requirements. I, I don't think um, that there needs to... Yeah, I think I think there... Though it's, it's very hard to come down exactly what I would mean by this. I, I think they're almost extra mental. That, um, uh, you know, to, you know the, the fact that 2 plus 3 equals 5 is true, not just independent of apples conglomerating in the natural history of the world, but it's it's true independent of there being any knowers, any mathematicians in the history of reality. So that if reality had just been a void from beginning to end, um, and ever and ever, it still would be true that two plus three equals five. I think I think Dale would differ on that. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I'm a divine conceptualist and, um, yeah, me and Paul were, it was, it was a good combo in front of the class. We kind of, I gave some objections to why abstract entities can't just exist in their own right. A couple reasons. One is just based on the inherent nature of abstract entities that it, they are mind dependent objects. Like the number two can't exist independent of a mind. Um, but, one reason, if you don't mind me just sort of asking, because I never got to ask it in class, but it, it's the third one where, um, look, that abstract entities don't stand in causal relations to anything. Like that the number two has never caused anything to happen. Whereas concrete objects or, or mental objects, they do stand in causal relations. Um, do, you think, do you think that has any bearing on, on saying that abstract things like the laws of logic or uh, numbers or that sort of thing um, are mind-dependent at all, or you're still, you still think they can exist independently? So, wait, could you just clarify for me the relation between causation and, and the mind-dependence thesis? Yeah, so, so in, in the world, right, the, um, like the number t- numbers or, or um, you know, propositions or something like that, they, they don't stand in causal relations. They, they don't, the number two has never caused anything to happen, like my pen to move or something like that. Um, but concrete objects do stand in, in causal relations, right? They both physically and as a substance dualist, uh, I think spiritual substances also stand in causal relations. So that there's this difference that we observe in the world. So therefore, applying that reasoning, we can sort of say, well, even in this platonic realm above and beyond the universe, abstract entities appear to be mind-dependent, and therefore it's more probable that my notion of divine conceptualism is true. There there aren't any 
abstract objects. They're only mental and physical. They appear to be mind-dependent because um, they don't have causal implications. Yeah, there's like a there's an there's a difference there. It's like your differences, the differences argument. Or... Wow, I'm just I'm just having a hard time seeing why that would be so. I, I'm sure it's just um, a gap in the thinking right now. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> why? Like, let me just state the position more positively again, and maybe you can come back at me. I mean, I, I think these, uh, call them conceptual objects, like like numbers, have not not causal implications, they have conceptual implications. Right, so um, it's the implication of two, and and, and of three, that five, five is their equivalent. And I'm just, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing why that, that not only couldn't be true, um, independent of any natural phenomena, causal phenomena. But it, it, it almost seems to me stronger than that, that, that we're, mi- we're mischaracterizing the nature of conceptual objects if we, if we insist that they've got some kind of dependence on acts, like mental acts. I assume when you're talking about a mind, you're talking about something that um, mentates, right? And I don't think the truths themselves are dependent on being thought. That's the thinking is what affirms the truth for the thinker. Thinking or the proving is what uh, draws out the implication. But the, the implications are are truly, I mean, truly mind dependent. I'm not sure if that at all addressed your objection. I'm just maybe uh, calling again for a clarification of the objection. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. No, I I just wanted to get your sincere sort of opinion there. I'm not trying to to challenge it, but yeah, it's it's. It's sort of it's arguing based on what we know of the objects based on our everyday experience. The the number two has the feature uh, in this universe of not standing in causal relation. So it, it seems like you're saying, yeah, but it's different. Uh, like in the in the context of moral um, abstract moral principles, right? You're saying that there's like a it stands in causal relations. The the moral facts impose themselves on us in the universe and guide our actions and that sort of thing. But if moral principles are abstract objects, and we know from our experience that abstract objects don't stand in causal relations, it's more likely that it's based in something else, such as the mind of God, because and then the God and then God can impose those moral facts on us or something. But I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I, I, and I admit I haven't thought, I don't think I've thought as deeply about this issue as you have, Dale. I just, um, so I'm just responding a little bit on the fly to your uh, very interesting uh, pushback. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, my first response as you, as you were just talking it, I popped into my mind. <laughs> that's, that's all it is. So take it for what it is, is, is a question. I, I just, I just wonder if in the moral case, like the ought, mm. uh, the ought proposition, if it really does have any kind of um, causal implication, as strict moral proposition, there's there's no doubt that once it sort of incarnates um, through socialization, for example, it has causal effects. But if we can, stri- you know, strip it to its pure ought um, affirmation, I'm not sure of that in itself, which I would take to be the core of the the, the moral truth, that itself. 
necessary <laughs> necessary causal effects on action. Um, I would I'd rather say, and this is takes us a little bit of circularity, I guess that that it ought to it ought to affect us causally. <laughs> that 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 if we're being moral or if um, we've arranged our socializing processes wisely, then the true ought statements, which again I would say I tend to think exist sort of independently of any mind, um, they 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 will be um, affecting guiding our behavior. That that itself is an, is an ideal. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if it if it doesn't happen quite the other way around, though. So so just pulling us back to the idea of abstract notion. So I wonder if it doesn't. Uh, we we were talking about the idea of of sort of the origin of of abstract objects. So uh, the number two, for instance, without some sort of unit like two apples or two oranges or, or two stones or whatever, but. I'm not sure that abstraction doesn't happen after concrete observation. So, Paul, you, you said, you know, two apples and three apples are the equivalent of five apples. And so, so that's, that's, uh, that seems right to me. But, but it seems to me that there's not much of a step from observing two apples and three apples being five apples and, uh, you know, four apples and six, uh, four oranges and six oranges being ten oranges and that sort of thing. It doesn't seem like much of a mental step to me, and, and perhaps I'm not, I may not be giving it its due in terms of consideration, but it, it doesn't seem to me to be, it doesn't seem to be, to be much of a step to abstract the, the number from the unit and just observe that this abstract idea has broader, has broader application. Yeah, but is, is that maybe just a question of the historical order in which the concepts arise? So it might just be a, yeah, yeah. A, a, you know, natural fact about animal learners like us sure. that we um, first observe the apples and then we abstract from those cases to reflect general principles. And, um, you know, if, lo if logic constrains nature, then there's a kind of inference to the logic that can occur from um, observation of nature. Uh, We'll mm. certainly never, never correctly observe violations of logic uh, when we observe nature by, by that view. Um, and we maybe even can uh, do a kind of induction, a kind of induction to the logical rule from, from the natural observation. But I'm not sure if that um, answers the question of which is prior ontological. I'm not sure either. Uh, it, was, um, it was just sort of uh, trying to turn the glass around. Right. Um, because I don't know that. Um, I, I mean, we're sort of at bare metal here and I'm not sure that I can answer for myself sort of sort of which came first here. Um, but I don't see in principle uh, a reason that abstraction cannot come through observation. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, like I said, I may not have given this, uh, it, you know, just consideration. I'm willing to acknowledge that, but um, it's the necessity you know. of it that uh, would be tricky to get from observation. The observation, it seems, would get you at best a very reliable induction, maybe analogous to inductive claims about the properties of particular mm -hmm. similar. Mm -hmm. uh, we've never observed a violation of that uh, that stipulation about properties of carbon atoms and. I, I, you just have to ask if you'd be willing to make that kind of 
it's got kind of weakening of, of the logical claims from from necessity into uh, highly um, probable. So <laughs> this this will this will make all sorts of people uncomfortable. I actually don't have a problem with that. I, I don't I don't have a problem uh, sort of emotionally. Maybe that's the wrong way to phrase this, but there there is sort of an emotional context to uncertainty, and and I'll just say that. I don't have there. There's no. Um, there's no. You know. There's no tickle inside my head if I um, reduce these things to non-necessity in in the sense that in some possible world somewhere they might be violated. Um, and and I I don't even know. Um, that, that I would have a problem if we observed a violation in this world, uh, only because I, I suspect, um, that whatever violation there was would probably be a regular, uh, observable violation. And that's just, that's just mental bias on, mm. on my part. That's all that is. I don't have a problem acknowledging that. But I don't know what it means to claim necessity, uh, here for myself, I, I understand the idea of necessity and why, why it's uh, why it's important, but I don't know that we've gotten to the heart of these things actually uh, of uh, you know of of the of the law of addition. I, I don't know that we've gotten to a point where I'm convinced that we've made a successful argument that it is a necessity. Yeah, I, I, uh, I you know I'm I'm willing to uh, be pretty epistemologically humble about these, uh, you know, close to metal issues, too. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm always deferring to the, to the thought, oh, anything possible, I, you know, I know so little, anything. Uh, but, you know, when we get to these laws of logic, it does seem like you can just, uh, through the pure operation of you know, the mind, see the contradiction inherent in the opposing view, like when we try to oppose any of the three rules. Right. You know, there's apparently a lot, I, I, and I don't know much about it, but there's, you know, a lot of recent work, I think, in these non-traditional logics, which, you know, I, one or more of those. those so, um, um, it, it's, it's for, for these, these um, you know, logicians, it's more than just a maybe. It's a, they've tried to work out uh, sort of coherent systems, I guess, which, which sure. explore other, other, other um, rules. Um, so... Yeah, um, I, I just I, I I wonder what the observation of contradiction would actually be. I guess I guess if if it's true that logic truly does um, constrain nature, then I'm just wondering if, if it would even be possible to observe <laughs> a contradiction. Um, well, and and that might be right. That you know that may be the best argument for necessity. I mean, you're you're, you're right down um, where I think you know there's, there's the best. There's the best defense that that these laws are of necessity, right? Um, because we can't even imagine what a contradiction would look like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so again, I, I mean, uh, you know, whether that's just a limitation of own cognitive machinery is, is right? but it sure seems from the inside of this machinery that it's some absolute limitation that this is a, 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 a um, 
you know, happy case where the limits of our machinery meet <laughs> the, the absolute truth. Right, because a, a, a violation of the law of, of this of the law of addition, just as for instance, would also have a further a further violation, right? Because a, a violation of the law of addition would also violate the law of uh, identity, right? Because if you could violate um, one apple and one apple being two apples, you might end up in a in a case where uh, neither of the apples also had distinct identity. Right. Or or maybe they had some sort of plural identity. I have no idea what it would mean to be able to uh, violate that idea in, in some sensible way, because it seems like anything that you could do that would break one of those fundamental laws would also, uh, dare I say, by necessity, <laughs> break other ones of those laws. Yeah, they're they're um, un- unstable logics, right? Um, I guess, you, you know, in, in classic symbolic derivation from a contradiction, anything, anything follows. So, um, maybe maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, anything follows sounds, uh, you could call it ontological richness or something, and some, maybe some, some ultimate version of a multiverse, and then we happen to be in one, which is strange. But, yeah, maybe well, the, sure. the heart of reality is some kind of the, the uh, I mean, we, we notice that engines uh, operate on some kind of gradient. They exploit some kind of natural gradients kind of difference. And of course, the, a logical engine would be the ultimate generator. If, uh, you know, the gradient between uh, contradictory states would be the ultimate. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, anything's possible. I'm, I'm very, I, I like the idea, I don't, you know, uh, that maybe at the heart of reality is some kind of contradiction. That's what generates um, the plurality of reality that we experience. But from the, again, from the inside of our own cognitive machinery, it feels like... <laughs> sure. I, I have one... Um, sorry to, to interrupt, Andrew. Were, were you finished? Or? Oh, I was. I, I, I am wondering about Matthew. I think we've put him to sleep. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting back and enjoying this. I, I have a question I want to ask, but you it, it rewinds about 10 or even 15 minutes, but... Um, you go ahead to ask yours first, uh, Dale, and, and then we'll see. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think we've covered everything. There, there is one last question that uh, we haven't touched on um, mm. in the science in the science section, and that's uh, relevant to faith. Uh, faith in a scientific context. Um, mm. You know, do, so I was just going to ask Paul. Like, do, do you th- and everyone can chime in? Do, do you think it's proper to employ faith in a scientific context at all? Um, by, by definition of that term, I think it's unavoidable in any action. Um, all action pre, uh, presupposes prior presumptions. Uh, any investigation has to begin from, from something. Uh, and, uh, by, by faith, we mean something, you know, and I'll let you, you define it in a minute. I'm curious for your sort of working definition of faith here, but but if, if faith is defined a little bit broadly to mean uh, some kind of confidence in a belief that isn't necessarily directly warranted, um, it seems it's practically unavoidable when we um, have to get at the truth. Uh, so science will have its versions of that, I, I agree. Cool. All right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, not on my end, I... I agree as well. I take, you know, faith 
primarily is is trust or this you have this confidence type type thing. So yeah, I I, I see it as fully proper to employ that in a scientific context and consistently in any other context as we'll explain when we get to the next section. So yeah, I, I largely agree with what Paul said. Um, Andrew and, and Matt, if you guys maybe want to give your take on that or Well that fits in well with the the question I wanted to ask because um my engagement with philosophy tends to be mostly with with uh theologians using uh philosophical processes to justify uh the statement that there is a god so that 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 works works with faith um and it was the uh, 10 or 15 minutes ago paul you made a, a comment around uh philosophy by its its very nature is uh self-doubting or questions itself uh, i can't remember the exact phrase that you used but you put in there that the the, the process of thinking philosophically is is to be questioning i i would uh, I wholly endorse that, and uh, that's the the basis of the the scientific method. You know, if you you, you see something, don't assume that that is what what you have seen is quotes the truth. You know, you must question that, you must doubt it, you must test it in every way possible, uh, because uh, every test exposes yourself to slightly closer to the truth. When I engage with um, theologians well theologians probably not the right word um, um but you know people promoting specifically christianity uh or either on facebook or, or twitter they're using philosophical arguments to state absolutely categorically without a shadow of a doubt there is a god and that god is the god that they that they believe in and um is is that a fair use of of philosophy or is that a separate branch of philosophy and and how does what what they do differ from the statement that you said about philosophy being a, a questioning process oh yeah yeah no it's a great 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 question I, it's clearly a leading question from my perspective i <laughs> I, I'm, I i accept that <laughs> um, i uh, i can feel dale's temperature going up i <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a sum it's an summer August afternoon. I, I'm good, man. I'm happy. <laughs> I've been in Canada in August. It's jolly hot there. I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I think when I when I was talking about philosophy's capacity for self doubt, I was thinking specifically of this uh, weird fact about philosophy that it's. I think if you asked a hundred working philosophers to define philosophy. Um, especially if you asked a hundred good ones, you'd get a hundred maybe distinct answers to the question. And I don't mm. think that's the case for, uh, you know, working biologists. Uh, so the field itself is, is, uh, not well defined. And so that's one of the facts, almost well defined facts of the field that it's this particular open playbox, playroom. Uh, the field itself, like what, what, what is the nature of this room where the walls is, is, uh, not, not clearly delineated beginning of the game um but i you know it's it's i leave open whether uh in that room we can find certainty about particular questions so it could be you know the ontological argument is sound like uh you know bertrand russell talks about falling off his bicycle at least for a for a moment being an a uh, being a theist a theist um uh realizing in a, in a flash that anselm's argument worked i don't think that thought stayed with him for his life but um, but maybe he was right in that flash that that Anselm's argument is is uh, a, a perfect proof of 
the existence of a perfect being. And uh, so, so I, I leave open the possibility that philosophy, including philosophical theology, could arrive at results, uh, maybe even very special results, with, which have a kind of justified certainty um, attached to them. All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Do you think you guys... I think we should move on to the to the final section on religious knowledge because I know that this is what Paul was really excited about. This was the favorite, your favorite, um, your favorite oh, section. So. And we should have moved on an hour and a half ago. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's good actually, but yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so, Paul, um, I don't know why I've turned into the host. <laughs> um, but yeah, did you want to maybe happy to let you do it, Dale? You'll, we'll we'll convert you sooner or later. <laughs> I'm just I'm so used to being the host on skeptic yeah um but yeah maybe Paul just turn it over to you first of all just to give sort of a general introduction to this section and, and say whatever whatever you want on the issue of religious knowledge and, and how faith relates to religion and that sort of thing oh, yeah <clears throat> yeah these 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 uh excellent questions which are so you know fundamental and therefore unavoidably um general. I often find uh, almost the mood I'm in that day, I can come up, I have, have different answers to them or different different uh, approaches to them. And maybe I'm a, a little bit in a, I don't want to say scientific mood today, but, but by that broadened sense of the scientific method that uh, we talked about at the beginning today, I'd be willing to uh, maybe not, not draw a very hard line between religious knowledge and scientific knowledge, just like I, I was only trying to raise your philosophic scientific knowledge. I suppose so far as uh, religion makes claims about reality, uh, we call for justification of those claims, and um, any plausible system of justification would fit in my broader notion of a scientific So, you know, if there is a creator of our universe, personal creator, some kind of personal existence which uh, continues on after bodily death, God Incarnated. Uh, any of these typically religious questions? I think these are these are questions we should demand to be investigated. And uh, so, in that, in that sense, approach approach scientifically. I uh, you know I mentioned that I, I was interested in sort of the epistemology of mystical experience. Well, mysticism, of course, is a kind of empirical approach to the divine. It's a little bit different from Anselm's argument, which is an a priori attempt to prove the existence of God. Whereas the mystical approach, and you know, one I just call it the experiential approach. That's that's the attempt to encounter those realities. And then from that data, if I, if I may, you know, um, derive, derive justified conclusions about what it is you experience. So I tend to, for reasons I should think about, favor the latter route. You know, even if you ran through the ontological argument and you realized it was sound, I, I could imagine for a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily make They see the um, necessity of the conclusion, given those premises, and the conclusion is there is a perfect being make too much of a difference to their life, whereas the experiential route would, so that there's that pragmatic thought in my mind that there should be a demand for an experiential encounter with these these realities. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the I think it all kind of dissolves into a, a quest for truth and I don't I don't see a good reason to at the beginning kind of draw a hard line between these different Gotcha. Okay. So Dale, yeah. what do you think there? Yeah, so I, I am more of the analytic uh, philosopher type, so yeah, no, I'm not as much into the the mystical side and that sort of thing. But um, I, I recognize that this could be sort of my deficiency. It, it, there's room for it to be a both and approach. Perhaps 
uh, experiential types of coming to knowledge of the divine in, in general is equally valid as, as using propositions, premise, objection, and, and that sort of thing. And um, that was one of the things that I appreciated in Paul's class that we just finished last week, um, the, the last class at least. Um, he's still marking me, so be kind, Paul. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're your end-of-term project. Is that what this is? <laughs> been a lot of people's projects over time. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, but yeah, he, he sort of ended. So, so a lot of the class was focused on analytic philosophy and you know, all the the going over morality and free will and that sort of stuff. But he, he ended the class with Nietzsche, um, who I, mm. I was sort of a fan with, uh, a fan of. But yeah, the way Paul taught it sort of kind of tweaked a little bit to be maybe there's something here that um, I should be paying more attention to. And rather than me explaining that. I'll, you know, Paul, Paul can sort of go in, explain that because I thought the way you explained why you were using Nietzsche in a different philosophical tradition, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, did, did you want to sort of explain to the audience that? Or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I, li- I like that distinction too, which um, is uh, Nietzsche is a, a person, you know, he's a robust personality. And um, you get that if you read Nietzsche directly, you're getting kind of a, an intellectual journal a portrait of a life and a mind struggling and that's very different from you know the ideal of analytic philosophy where uh, it, it reduces a little bit to premises and conclusions and objections and responses and I think that's somewhat true I think I think a good encyclopedia of analytic philosophy is, is, is really worth reading and can in many cases be an improvement <laughs> on the original Articles the arguments appeared in there's a there's a clarification a reduction to to the core ideas and uh, That doesn't work so well for some uh, figures and movements in philosophy and Nietzsche would be almost a prime example of that where uh, You know um, People you'll meet you down to arguments and positions. I mean they're, they're often fascinating But there's something there going on in the impression of a personality working in real time on the page that is has, has been handed down to us That's important to encounter too and, and the theological connection is is that, of course, if, if God is a person, capital P, person, that implies some kind of personality. And if humans uh, or uh, created life are made in God's image, then there's a kind of inferential process there possible. If you, if you, you know, sort of the holographic principle that if you really pay attention to the part, you can infer something about the whole. And you really pay attention to a particular articulate person, you might be able to make interesting inferences about the super person. Too. I'm not saying Nietzsche is the incarnation of God. I'm saying anyone who's articulated a person um, on the page for us, personality, you know, given us their personality, that's, that's a datum. You know, that's a super datum that we need to pay attention to. Um, we, can't, we can't take the personality out of the philosophy totally, especially if you've got this background theological hypothesis that Reality itself, at its core or at its origins, might be a capital P person. Andrew or or Matt? I think okay. So um, my um, my failure of imagination here. Um, the listeners know I'm a comp sci guy. Um, I spend a lot of my time um, dealing with hard values and and hard data and that sort of thing. And so the whole time we're going through this. 
I'm, I'm just wondering about experimental verification. So this, this is perhaps the, the wrong way to aim the conversation. And if so, I'm hoping that you will rescue us all. Um, but so, <laughs> so when we talk about the idea that God is a personality, I don't know if the problem with that is an idea. I was, I was a Christian for a long time. I was happy to try to, to uncover whatever truth could be uncovered there. In the end, it all seemed a little too, a little too amorphous. So we were talking about, um, we were talking about logic earlier. Um, I've said this over and over, so listeners should be familiar. Uh, you know, any argument that we make, well, if we're talking about deductive arguments, so to, to be fair, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't make an argument for God, um, that was both well formed and one where I could demonstrate that the conclusion was true. Right. So I, I, I'm, um, I, I don't think that, um, that the Kalam does a particularly good job, but let's just pretend that we're as philosophically charitable to the Kalam as we can possibly be. Whatever the conclusion to the Kalam is, I wasn't able to sort of run out and prove it in the traditional way. Right. So if I, if I said that, um, uh, if I said that, um, all mammals had, uh, you know, um, if I'm, if I made the traditional mammal argument about my dog, right. Uh, then I couldn't do the same thing with some God, right. And so I was never able to get to a point where, um, where I felt good about a hard conclusion that there was uh, some being in the sky, uh, or sorry, that's probably a little dismissive, but there's some being out there winding the gears of the universe toward a particular conclusion. I, ne- I never could get there. And, and so it, it maybe we're pointing the conversation in the wrong direction, but, but if so, that, that was my thought while, while you guys were talking. Yeah. I guess if you're coming from, from Dale's more analytic perspective, then, um, and all you would have is, is these, the arguments. Um, though some of them might have a experiential input, like even the classical <laughs> argument has some minimal input from, I don't know if it's observation, but, you know, noticing cause and effect or noticing motion, like in Aquinas' ways, and then making inferences from that. But, um, but I, I guess the, the, the other, the other route, the, the experiential route is to seek an encounter with something, um, in reality. But that can proceed according to certain rational insights, right? Like, so, so here, here, here's an example. If there is a superperson in reality, um, it, it would hear me if I just spoke out to it right now. And if it's moral and I was with the right kind of urgency requesting that it responds to me, maybe even in real time, um, I should expect some kind of sign of a response. From it. Right. So that's a kind of working hypothesis of prayer um, right. in, in that in that uh, realm. And you know, I I think that that route is is important to keep in mind. I mean, uh, even if we personally fail to get uh, you know convincing data and that kind of experiment, we do have this interesting record. You know, across humanity of contact with something outside what we would say called the natural realm. So that's, that's, that counts for something. I mean, there, there, there are naturalistic explanations of religious experience that might be able to counterweight all that evidence or explain it away. But it's, it's got some initial weight. I guess maybe what I'm getting at is when you're seeking the experiential route, 
there should there should still be rational constraints on it, and we should place some demands on what to expect. So something analogous to a, a Turing test for for dialogue with divine being, right? Just like um, you know, if you're going to judge the convo bot, be conscious or at least the person, it's got to pass a certain level of conversational ability. Uh, we should expect that from the real time, you know, given response and fair and signs. No, it it, it might be um, that. The majority of individual dialogues or attempted dialogues with the ultimate reality um, do not pass or even come close to passing that Turing test, and that people who, you know, infer that the test has been passed, who infer, for example, they've received a response to their prayers, they're just holding their conversation partner, their divine conversation partner, to a very low standard of evidence. They're not taking into account things like, you know, I mean, very selection effects and biases. Paridolias. But but you know, ideally or in principle, if you could have a, a seeker uh, who's seeking dialogue with this person and is 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 well correcting for a lot of these expected biases, and then re- receives in real time um, a kind of response from this person that passes some kind of super capital P Turing test, right? Where where there's not just evidence that this thing is intelligent, but it's like Wow, it's got the greatest sense of humor um, <laughs> that I've ever encountered in world literature. Or it's um, wow, it's the form of its of its communication is superhuman. Meaning, it's it's um, um, using features of my natural and social environment as a chalkboard. So that implies control over that natural and social environment, which would certainly be superhuman. Anyway, uh, that's it's interesting. Right. So this experiential roots. Um, I think we should pursue it with rational demands, and I think that the hard fact for Pius will be that most of us really do fail the test, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that some individuals in history haven't passed. And so, you know, when I think of Jesus of Nazareth or Brunonic or about some of these figures that I admire from religious history, I, I tend to think of them as people who've been passing this test, right? At, at least they've been receiving what we would identify as more or the belief to generate from these encounters, from these dialogic encounters, it, it still might be that objectively their their belief is false. But they've, they've done a pretty good job attempting to correct for these biases. Now, the, the trick with the experiential route is it never gets you, I, I don't think, I can't see how this kind of, you know, even the ideal Turing-passing conversation with a divine dialogue partner could tell you that this is the ultimate being, right? You need Anselm's ontological argument to establish the existence of an ultimate being. No matter how impressive your dialogue partner is, there's nothing they can say or even do that would show they are the ultimate uh, reality. Uh, so maybe you need to, <laughs> it's like uh, channeling, right, from from both sides. Uh, you channel from the priori side, the Anselm side, establish, ideally, falling off your bicycle like Russell, you establish the, ex- the objective existence of the perfect being. And experientially, from the other side of the channel, digging, you, uh, you start talking to this and you start to wonder if maybe those are the same being. You're talking to the being that Anselm was was uh, referring to in his conclusion. If you don't mind me sort of chiming in, I, I totally agree with what uh, Paul was saying. I, I think that there is this both-and approach. Um, and one thing that came up uh, in, in our classes is, um, so Paul was teaching us about uh, Augustine's conversion story. Um, and it was in the context of, well, this is an intellectual sort of objective argument. It's a design argument uh, showing special providence of God. And 
you know, he, he reasons this happens and the likelihood of that, therefore God exists type thing. And then to that, you have sort of the, the counter explanations. But one thing that uh, I think I think I sent it to you in an email, Paul, but I, I said, well, what if what if he's not actually reasoning or making a design argument? Um, he could also be having this experiential route, which is what I call the properly basic belief that God exists. It's not so much a set of premises to a conclusion, therefore a, a designer God providentially arranged for this for, to happen. It's more just a direct, wow, God exists in light of this experience. So it, I just want to stress that there, there could be this both end. Um, there could be an intellectual argument to this experience, a, a design type argument or something, if you if you can prove that. But in addition to that, you could also have a direct experiential route that gives you knowledge God where God exists by a properly basic belief. So it, it could be both and. You could have double warrant, uh, potentially. I don't know what you guys make of that or what you guys want to say to that. I'd like to ask a question. Paul, I don't if you if you've got something to say, I'll wait. No, go ahead. Okay. So here's here's why I walked out on this, Dale, because I, I, I do get where you're coming from, but it very much seems to me, let's, let's say that I, I get this, um, this idea in my head that there's a, you know, there's a, there's this, there's God out there and he's talking to me from beyond space time or, you know, however, however you gloss that, I'm, I'm trying to attach some specific position to the idea, but let, let's just say that's what you believe. There's a, there's a God that's outside space and time, you know, and he holds a future in his head or whatever. So, yeah, I might get this this idea that there's a God, but it doesn't address um, for me all of the central claims of Christianity that don't get addressed. So it's a God that can live forever. It's a God with personal, uh, with perfect judgment. Uh, it's a it's a God that does or does does not maintain uh, an eternal torment chamber for people that that don't love Him, depending on whether you're you know eternal conscious torment or an annihilationist. Right? Um, there there are all sorts of things that don't get answered just by saying, I have this properly basic belief. And and so just saying that I got this communication from from somewhere, even if you did, even even giving it its best gloss, um, I still don't have the questions answered that matter, which are the central claims of Christianity about the ability to live forever, God keeping a tally list of sins if he does, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I would just say, so in the first place, you could, though, right? It, it depends what you're having a properly basic belief about, and you could have m multiple properly basic beliefs. I, I do. Um, but yeah, they, that's why I was stressing there's a both and, right? Not not all of my beliefs that I believe as, as a Christian come through a properly basic belief method. There, there's also reasoning and the use of divine scripture so you know that's sort of my notion of sufficient attachment right sure, sure. Um, i i don't have a properly basic belief whether god is a calvinist god or or a molinistic god as i i like to as i believe um i, I use sort of reasoning from the scriptures and and you know basic logic to to sort of arrive that that is the case um but i i do have elements of that of that arguing which are properly basic such as libertarian free will i just know i have libertarian free will that's a properly basic belief and that's one element that could go into an argument that i could use in eventually arguing 
no, Calvinism is false and actually Molinism is true or some form of Armenianism or something like that. Sure. So, yeah, properly basic beliefs don't have to bear, it doesn't matter, either method doesn't have to bear all the weight. It could be a combination and of different means to gaining knowledge. And yeah, that, that's true in my case. So, yeah. You know, but, oh, Paul, I'm sorry. I think you were going to say something. Let me just, let me pause. No, I think uh, I think um, Andrew, you and I have a lot in common in the way we would we would approach these sorts of more dialogic encounters. Uh, that I, I would be very careful about what I theologically infer from from one encounter or even a series of them. Just like when you're getting to know a person, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a relationship there, and there's a maybe a series of dialogues and interactions, and and you can start to infer more and more about the nature of this person, its values. Um, but you're always open in some skeptical part of your brain, maybe, to the fact that, to the possibility that, that you've been fooled or you're misunderstanding the person you thought you loved for 30 years and thought loved you and had just been betraying you the whole time and presenting a very effective front uh, dialogically. These are, but, but that, that can become a kind of virtue, even of the, seeker right that that maybe actually what characterizes the seeker and what characterizes the kind of personality that's most likely to receive a response from their calls of the universe is this kind of openness this openness is a kind of epistemic humility it's because they're open to the possibility that i could just call out and something will respond the thing responds the thing is more likely to respond and that that very same um openness is what will hopefully restrain me from inferring too much about its nature once it does respond so that the other the other particular theological almost sub facts are mm -hmm. either inferred much later in the relationship or like dale was sketching out they're inferred by other um streams sure and and i i am i am actually um not in opposition to dale's idea that it may take multiple kinds of um multiple kinds of approaches to to reach a conclusion. Now, I'll just say that uh, we don't necessarily line up on, on properly basic belief. Yeah. Um, but but I will say, Dale, that if I could get an answer to, to one of those larger questions, you know, there's a God that can live forever. Just as a, I'll take that one as an example because we use it so often, right? There, there's a God that is eternal. If I somehow got to that answer, Right. And, and I could rely on that answer um, in, in the same sort of um, uh, in the same sort of probabilistic way that I could rely on other answers that I trust. So I'm not actually saying that I have to believe it 100 percent. Right. Because because I act on all kinds of things where I don't believe them 100 uh, percent, whatever, whatever that might mean. Uh, so if I could get to one of those answers, we'd be closer. Right. But, it, yeah. but right now, that's that's my problem. The sort of arguments that I get are all of the, the sort of arguments. They're not arguments I can test. Uh, I'll accept for you that that you feel very differently about that. Right. I, I don't I don't have a problem. With the fact that we don't agree. That's fine with me. Um, but, you know, you, you, you got to get over the bar for one of these things. You, you gotta, you gotta, uh, yeah. There's a there's a God that has an eternal torment chamber, or he doesn't. I don't care what the question is, but that's an eternal question. 
or or he can, or he's all knowledgeable. See, I don't I don't even know how you could possibly be perfectly knowledgeable because somewhere in there you will run into an infinite regress issue about some kinds of knowledge. And and so I you know it it's those sorts of things where you just have to claim a properly basic belief, right? I, I just believe there is a God that is all knowledgeable, and I can't get there, um, even even probably. Yeah, yeah, I, I would echo that. I I like what Paul said earlier on about uh, reminding us that you know people who engage in philosophy are are seeking the truth, and I think all of us are. Uh, are seeking the truth. I think when we're having conversations like this, it's it's useful just to remind ourselves that we're all starting from the same point. We're all seeking truth. We might arrive, we might go by different routes. We might arrive at, at different conclusions, but our, our purpose and our, our goal is is pretty much the same. So let's uh, g- give each other some slack on on that and uh, you know, see if we can can work work together to the to the same to the same conclusion. So I want to to fully endorse uh, uh, that sentiment and in, in the broader field of philosophy and other things you know science and philosophy don't have to be uh, uh, logheads they don't have to be enemies in fact I, I don't think they are um, and you know we're we're seeking to let's use as many tools as we've got to uh, that are available to to edge a little bit closer to the truth and I think where where I have an issue is is where people reach a conclusion, then state that that is fundamentally the right answer, and, and no other answer could be considered. I think all all the best philosophers uh, are, are are people who who don't stop at that point. You know, they're constantly saying, "Well, yeah, that 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 looks like it's right, but it might not quite be right." You know, and uh, yeah. let, let's investigate get somewhere else. And I, and I think we it would be good to remind ourselves that you know, doesn't matter how sure we are about something. We could we could still be wrong, so so let's uh, you know, give each other a bit of slack and and acknowledge that we're all seeking for the right answer. Yeah, there's a stereotype of uh, the way wisdom sounds, and it often is portrayed as this very confident, affirmative, you know, aphorism-driven statement of, of what is, uh, you know, the, the the holy man sitting on the mountain. Uh, when, when you approach him, tells you what it is in a very concise, <laughs> confident way. When in fact, you know, a lot of our uh, working examples of, of, of wisdom sound a little bit more, you know, maybe like our conversation, it's a little bit seeking and searching and querying and uh, sentences that end like this rather than like this. Uh, so it's more wisdom is actually a kind of interrogative process rather than a confident result. And you see people at the, at the cutting edge of the sciences, for example, they're very aware of all the darkness, all the unanswered questions facing them. Whereas, you know, the public that receives the scientific, receives scientific wisdom as it trickles down through the various uh, institutions tend to have the mistaken impression that we just have a kind of confidence and near completeness in this, in this picture. Right, that, that, that science has spoken. And, and that, so we do have that sort of mistake, don't we, where we, where we treat science as equivalent to thou shalt. From yeah. from a holy book, right? And and there is that danger, and and we let the we let the really wise guy on the mountain speak to us in sound bites, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, so there's a there's a real problem. I, I'm I'm not a big fan of uh, of thou shalt in uh, in in either realm, 
Um, I, I don't know. Someone once said to me, uh, a guy named Sean that I, that I worked with, uh, years and years ago, he's a, he's a physicist, and he said, uh, truth is a process of successive approximation. Mm-hmm. And that has worked on me, um, oh, for 30 years now, right? It, it, it's, quite a, it's quite a powerful thing, but it's not a great sound bite. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've got to be careful about the hard conclusions. Can I, can uh, I just give some, a quick pushback? Because please. Okay, so in the first place, I hear I and agree with all three of you that there's a big problem when people display an unwarranted confidence in in something, and, and that often happens. And you know, I'll, I'll confess, maybe sometimes doing the show, sometimes I'm guilty of doing that myself. Uh, you know, I'm, we're all human, but there are some cases where people are warranted. I, I I am warranted in being a a confident person in saying one plus one equals two or Rene Descartes' conclusion that uh, Paul taught us about. Um, you know, I think therefore I am. Th- this, at least some things, are things that we should be placing that amount of confident in, confidence in because we know it that strongly. I don't care about the naysayers. I, I know this to be true. Um, you know, other examples. Uh, so we were talking about consciousness and um, I, I know that Andrew and, and Matt will have a different opinion, but I, I'm more in Paul's league when it comes to these subjective facts that we just know about consciousness or, you know, Rene Descartes' conclusion. So I don't I don't think it's helpful to just sweep everything away and say we should doubt everything. There, there are some things that, no, we, we can really know this without doubt. Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to sort of come back on that. Or... <laughs> Matthew, Matthew, do you want, look, um, okay, so there's a bone in the middle of this. Uh, <laughs> who wants the bone? Matthew, do you want it? <laughs> I, well, yeah, it was a response to my comments. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to give. Certainly on, on um, I, I think there's categories of things, absolutely. Now I'll endorse that down and... Uh, yes, one plus one is two. Yes, we can we can all be confident on that. There are multiple ways in which we can can dem- demonstrate that. I'm not sure how that work. How that? Yeah, I'm not really sure how that works for the bigger things. You know, one of one of the most confident uh, theories in science is uh, the theory of uh, evolution. But there are still technicalities in the process that that works that we're not confident on. We might be very confident on the wider picture, but the nitty-gritty, the detail, the how uh, of of various uh, features and, and various forms and, and various characteristics, we're not entirely sure. So we're, we're and so for 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 bigger pictures like that, and for the existence of, of God, somebody might be absolutely certain uh, in. Um, uh, in the their belief uh, in a god, but it's belief not a not a demonstrated certainty. And um, so, yeah, people can be absolutely sure about things that aren't true. So, and I think there's a blurring from from the small and the nitty gritty that we can know to the bigger picture things where it becomes far more blurred. Yeah, that's that... my thought. That is exactly my thought too. As the sophistication or complexity of a claim increases, um, I think it is much harder to make a definite, um, to to create a definite position 
on the on the back of a of a of a highly sophisticated claim uh, versus a a much simpler claim. I uh, I think I'm uh, I think I would agree I agree with Dale that uh, at least in principle there are uh, one could have warranted certainty about all sorts of things, including theological claims. And it could be that what strikes us as complicated, what we really understand it turns out to be the simplest thing that, I mean, I, again, it's, it's possible that the fact that God exists, that what is ontologically prior is that maybe once you, once you understand it, that could be as clear as uh, Descartes' cogito is possible. And in fact, there's an analogy there, right? They're both disclosures of some core logical conscious fact and, uh, so, uh, so yeah, definitely. Even, even, even you know, the core, the core theologic claims could be um, known with a high degree of certainty. And uh, and Matthew's example of evolution, my 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 sense of it as an outsider to the field is that, you know, when you get to the the core process of of natural selection, uh, there's a kind of logical truth there, almost. You know, something to the effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just in the space of possibilities, with enough you know enough chances, order. It's almost—it's a quasi-mathematic fact. And order, order trumps disorder because order repeats and disorder does not repeat. So we'll fill up, fill up possibilities. Oh, I, mean, I love I, what I, you've just said. I'm going to steal that phrase. I, I, I want to say that I made this kind of appeal earlier in the show about um, about knowledge. It, it may be that that knowledge is something that happens without a predependent idea on you know just through process. We, we get something ordered. And, uh, you know, that's sort of what we're saying about, about evolution here, that, that out, of, out of just this process, this, this sort of uh, living order occurs. It didn't, it didn't depend on anything in particular, uh, although, um, you know, there was a, the whole discussion about, about necessity, right? So I'm not trying to rehash that, but... But I think I think that's right. I think um, you know evolution certainly. We we have the process of of natural selection, and um, it's not entirely random, right? And it can occur, and uh, as far as we can tell, did occur, um, you know, without a kickstart of a mind. Uh, although Dale, I wonder what you think. About it. Yeah. So so I guess two two things. So in, in the first place, regarding the complexity. So. In the first place, uh, I don't believe this, but many theologians would say God is the ultimate symbol, right? He has divine simplicity, that attribute. Um, So that could be challenged. Maybe God is the ultimate in simplicity. But the the main point I wanted to make is that I don't think that complexity in and of itself entails that we have to have doubt. Um, I understand what you're saying uh, in terms of evolution, right? We have certain ways where we're reasoning and inferring and it's based on multiple data points where we may have doubt about each one of those individual data points and that cumulatively adds up to increase our doubt overall. Um, but in terms of God's existence, it, it, if you know I'm talking about this properly basic belief type thing, that that's a basic belief. That's simple. That's fundamental. It's not composed of parts or anything like that just because the hypothesis of God has all these different attributes or something, and that means he, he is complicated. The, the belief that there is this maximal great being, 
that could be considered simple. That that doesn't just because something's complicated doesn't entail that one ought to have doubts um, or complicated in the sense that it involves multiple aspects or something like that or detailed study. Do, do you know what I'm? Do you know get what I'm trying to say? Like I do. Um, I, I don't think I agree, but I I do understand you. I mean, the the thing is that we can have we so. There's sort of two ways to look at this. Uh, a complex belief, uh, well, okay, let's take this out of the area of belief. A complex equation, uh, just as a, for instance, so we, we can get out of the, of the soft area. A complex equation, you, you feed some numbers in and it has a right answer, right? And it feel, so we can say that the answer is right or wrong and we can have a belief about the nature of, of that answer as being right or wrong. However, I still think that the very nature of having to go through the steps to uh, to say, well, there is a right or wrong answer, implies that we should be careful about our declaration that that we are certain about the answer. Um, so when you when you talk about a, a God, yes, you can absolutely have a uh, whatever belief you want to have and assign whatever degree of probability you want to assign to to a god right and and i mean if you even assign it a hundred percent uh likelihood if, if that is how you feel about it but i think that to do that you're not giving proper credit um to all of the things that go into establishing a higher degree of belief than is warranted so for okay, so for you, your objection doesn't so much apply to the properly basic belief route, but let's say I'm reasoning to God through multiple steps. I think is the way the way you put it. Each of those well, steps. reasoning about the nature of God. Oh, well, okay, we can use that. We we can leave the nature of God. The nature of God to me seems to be complex, but let's 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 talk about it stepwise and not about the nature of God. So yes, maybe maybe we have to go through a lot of steps. So what what if just just because there are a lot of steps doesn't inherently prove that one has to have doubt. I one could hypothetically be a hundred percent have a hundred percent knowledge for each and every single one of those steps, and therefore the conclusion would be one hundred percent foolproof in, in knowledge. Obviously now practically speaking or realistically speaking, that that very rarely occurs, especially in the case of evolution. There there are usually always room for doubt. Um, but I'm just saying hypothetically, the, the correlation that you're making, it's complicated, there are multiple steps, therefore there has to be doubt, isn't necessarily the case. You could have 100% knowledge, yeah, for all of those sure. steps. Yeah, so, so we're, we're, we're in lockstep there. Okay. It is possible, but when, when I, but that's not actually, that's not actually, that's sort of a, that's sort of hiding the problem here. Because the, the question was about, uh, was about, am I probably correct? Right? And so hypothetically, there is a very small chance, um, that I'm absolutely correct. But even you in, in, in re-describing this admitted that it is more likely that, uh, that there is room for doubt. And, and so, uh, you know, I don't have a, a properly basic belief in a God. Uh, of, and 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 so just uh, the way I approach the world, okay, maybe maybe you're right. Um, but as far as I can tell, and, and by the way, this is this is not an attempt to 
is almost sounds disparaging. I'm just pointing out the nature of our disagreement. Yeah. It seems to me more likely that you're wrong. And so that's not intended to, to be barbed in any way. That's just, you know, pointing out the way that we're doing this. It, it seems to me more likely. Uh, I, I can't get to where you are using using the information that I have in my hands. Sure. Yeah. And I, I can't demonstrate to you. So I, I get that my saying a properly basic belief is just meaningless to you. I, I can't use that as proof. And, and that's why I would rely on natural theology and, and arguments like the Kalam or ontological argument or something like that, which uh, would possibly have a chance to convince you. But yeah, those, those are composed of steps. We, we call them premises or conditions. So yeah, there, there could be areas of doubt in those premises and, and that would cause you not to to think the argument is logically sound or something like that. So yeah, if that's, if that's all you're saying, then I totally agree with you guys. Uh, yeah, of course. And, and that's, yeah. I can just jump in my, um, my, uh, experience with some of the traditional arguments, um, for example, the cosmological arguments, it's almost like the problem is not the steps. Typically you can work them out. So there aren't, too many steps. Uh, but the problem is that each premise has built into it almost all of philosophy, right? So right. If, if, you're, if you're running a, a cosmological argument and, and you want to use the word cause, well, we can, you know, even before we raise the specter of Hume's problem, um, wonder, wonder exactly what we mean by cause and effect. I mean, this is endemic to any kind of investigation, I guess, but yeah. in my own, my own experience with these arguments, the reason I, I just don't feel I've ever I'm not sure a lot of my belief is really weighted too much by these arguments, which I tend to be uh, balanced pretty agnostic about. It's, it's because they, they involve so many deep, vague philosophical terms within the premises that I'm just not sure what to make of it by the time we get to the conclusion. In fact, I want to stop <laughs> at each premise. I was like, wait, wait, before we go on to premise two, we need to talk, you know, maybe for a hundred years about what we mean by causation or what we movement is. And, and to be fair, just for for the sake of balance, you you also feel this way about atheist arguments like the problem of evil and stuff. You think that, or the hiddenness of God, which is I know a, a favorite of Andrew. You think those those arguments suffer the same problem as as a Christian? Yeah. Is that is that right, Paul? Or? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the problem I'm talking about would be almost an, an endemic to to philosophical argument, um, but. Uh, you know, the, I, I should think more about what I'm saying here because it's not that I don't have any philosophic positions. So clearly, some arguments work for me, and some some don't. The theologic arguments say, well, you know what? The, some some version of the design argument I think has fed into my belief making, but it's a it's a really complicated version of design which takes in, like Dale had referred, to, uh, the Augustine type experiences, the like every every little uh, apparent dialogic encounter with with a superperson with the uh, uh, like a miniature design argument or an additional premise loaded into sub-premise loaded into a design argument. Uh, so I think that that's played a life in my, my belief. But the cosmologic and ontologic, I'm not sure, or the, the moral argument, they're, they're interesting to talk about, but I don't think they've budged my belief in the needle either, either way. Okay, so one, I think we've covered one last question that I've written here, and that, that covers everything that I've uh, got here. But it, so you sort of hinted at the the what wisdom is and within the context of religion what 
what would you say is the difference between religious knowledge and religious wisdom and, and how they sort of relate to each other? And uh, just as sort of a quick follow-up, does true religious wisdom require a diviner's source, a, a divine source or something like that, in your opinion? Or? Uh, wisdom, wisdom versus knowledge. You know, the, the reductivist side of me wants to say, well, surely all wisdom would reduce to knowledge, but it would be a special subclass of, of knowledge, uh, probably including what we'd call pragmatic knowledge. But that pragmatic knowledge would be knowledge about real-world changing conditions and knowledge of valuable ends to pursue and the, you know, knowledge of the processes that get you to those ends. So, um, you know, a lot of what we mean by wisdom, I think, could be captured with a few steps by... Would it be fair to categorize wisdom as the application of knowledge? I think that's a lot of it, eh? Yeah. Yeah, application of knowledge to um, creaturely ends, uh, something, something like that. Maybe you not know, just creaturely, but whatever. The, the ends of the uh, of this of experience are, uh, yeah. Yeah, are pragmatic. I, I just want to see it as the, the power of discernment. So perhaps you could say it's knowledge of how to discern religious knowledge or religious truths or something like that or yeah re religious uh application or something like that um yeah I, I actually like the way you said that as a subclass of knowledge i'm gonna i'm gonna steal that for myself so. <laughs> <laughs> well i really like this idea of discrimination being one of the, the key features of the wise I, I i i like that a lot i know in sanskrit there's a term for that kind of discrimination that's characteristic of the wise i think it's uh Vivek, the term for discrimination of the kind Dale's referring to, which if this, I think it's, again, it's reducible probably to knowledge. It's it's probably from long discerning experience where the discerning came in again, but um, through that long experience, knowing how to distinguish, you know, I, I, I like the example always of you're faced with a, a shelf of books and you have a free afternoon and all you have to go on is the spines, the titles on the spines and the author's name maybe, and just the look of the book. And somehow I, I like the idea that, that this kind of, uh, um, discriminatory power Dale's referring to would, would give you a good chance of picking the book most likely to lead to a fruitful afternoon of exploration. And then mm -hmm. once you dive into that book, uh, again, your power of discrimination will let you, from that book, uh, choose five new doors or books to open. And so this autodidactic process of learning, which is this process of linking book to book or web page to web page, is, is guided by this, this quality Dale's referring to, but it's mysterious in the end, you know, and maybe that connects to Dale's sub-question about what's 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 behind this process. There might be final causes drawing us. I'm open to that idea. Cool. Yeah, I think that that covers it for, for my list of questions. Is there anything else that either Andrew, Matt, or, or Paul that you guys want to say or about this topic or discuss on this? I, I guess uh, when Andrew was talking uh, maybe 15 minutes back about all of the uh, questions he has theologically, for example, the uh, question about hell, is there a hell or is there not a hell, and how it's hard to know how these particular questions could get answered, you know, by, for example, Dale's root of rational inference. I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to that, you know, to Andrew's concern there. I, I guess my own view tends to more and more reduce this duality. It's a kind of bifurcation in my, my theology where... There's a growing certainty that there is something there. There's something worth calling superhumans. That's in our experience. Um, but there's so much, you know, ignorance about the particular kinds of beliefs 
Andrew was referring to. And I guess my, to put it into a question for Andrew, Andrew, wouldn't it be an amazing result for the hard-headed, comp sci, empiricist, rationalist in you if, forget about all the particular theological beliefs, if you could just be pretty confident that there is something, you know, capital S something there, and you have a lot of questions about what it is, whether it's ultimate or not, what its plans are, whether it's good or evil, whether it's one or many, you know, Hume raised all these questions in his critique of the design argument. He says, well, even even if it works, we, we, we have all these questions about uh, whether it's one or many, good or bad, a child god or uh, an ultimate god. And um, I guess, yeah, wouldn't you, have to, wouldn't you admit it would be amazing if you could at least have some confidence? There's something real and it's, it's talking to you. Yeah, look, if, if, if I could do that, and this is this is actually why I left the the Christian faith. I I, I hate to repeat parts of my story over and over because the listeners got to be born to tears. But I double majored in theology and computer science uh, a, a thousand years ago or whatever. Uh, it, it seems like it seems like that long ago. And and uh, you know I was I was at some point at least socially convinced through through the people around me that really really believed that there was this that there was this God out there and I was willing to devote a certain amount of, of energy in my youth to promoting that idea right and and so it, it's probably the case that if I could somehow come back to something like that certainty right I'd I'd stop writing code and start you know trying to acquaint people with, with whatever degree of certainty I had about you know, uh, about whatever that answer was, right? So you, you were talking about the different kinds of answers, child God or, you know, maybe, maybe the Christian God or whatever. I mean, if, if I could come back to, to some kind of certainty about that, I'm sure I'd, I'm sure I'd switch to that side. May it make me sound wishy-washy, right? I, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll accept it. But yeah, it would be amazing. It, it, it would be great to answer the question about whether there's a, a theistic God or, you know, some sort of universal consciousness. Uh, you know, there's a, there's some renewed interest in that kind of thing right now among scientists and, and, uh, you know, panpsychism or, or whatever, uh, whatever the flavor of the day is. And by the way, there, there may be some, uh, I was reading a, a couple of books this weekend about this idea of universal consciousness and, and, uh, you know, matter being a, uh, uh, somehow intrinsically part of of a mind rather than the other way around, and you know those are appealing ideas. And and so yeah, I'd switch sides. I'd probably stop coding if <laughs> if, if, if if I could get there. It what, would be amazing. Well, maybe maybe the bean is a kind of coder, right? I mean, one of the we we've used all these <laughs> being you know, a clockmaker and maybe the updated version of the clockmaker is yeah so uh, look if i would actually if if that god is listening i i want to write uh the first book on universal basic right where we actually get to code our own reality <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to write I'm ready to write that book <laughs> oh i don't know visual basic is good enough for me <laughs> oh yeah but so are windows boxes <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. Oh, no, That's not this Windows thing again. <laughs> it's never going to end, Dale. It's never going to end. Just so you know, Paul, they, they were arguing about this last time I was on the show. So now <laughs> I heard a bit of the Apple window. Um, uh, oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to roll forever. That one. It's going to help. I think this this uh, we're just going to have to rename this podcast in about two yeah. years' time. That we won't talk about anything else. Dale, I am Dale. I am converting today. 
Um, Bill Gates is proof mm-hmm. that there's a hell. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take. I'll get it anywhere I can, right? Oh, so you're a con- you're an eternal conscious torment kind of guy now. <laughs> um, Paul, I, I I know that we're wrapping up, and I wanted to say that this was as I, I expected this conversation to be something that uh, really made me think a little bit and question some of my own assumptions. And I, I was, I have been looking forward to this from the very beginning and it was as pleasurable as I thought it would be. And so thank you. It, it, you know, I, I realized there were portions of this that were probably sophomore from, from your perspective. And, oh, no. and, uh, oh, and I just, I just, I thank you for being willing to come on. Before we do the wrap up, um, just for the audience, do you mind sort of explaining exactly what what is your religious viewpoint? Are are you an idealist or panpsychist or? Oh, good question. uh, Yeah, just give give the audience sort of a a feeling for what is your your actual stance. Uh, You're laying the ground for a reinvite, Dale. That's a whole other uh, series that I'd have to think about very carefully. I, uh, I think I, I, I maybe I'll, you know, I hate to avoid a direct answer, uh, but uh, but I, I guess maybe my, my answer is uh, the older I get, and hopefully the wiser. I don't know. The the less prone I am to identify with a direct summable answer to these questions, which is not to say that I, I'm just uh, you know more and more swimming in uh, aporia or doubt. As I get older, but um, but I guess in, you know if we're if we're getting to, to um, you know kind of theological metaphysical outlook to be summed, I I, I do find myself comfortable saying something like I'm, I'm increasingly confident there is something worth calling you know, superhuman, um, if not outside space and time. I you know that's I don't know about that, but but something, you know, something which which a naturalist would say is is is, is not local and not not just human, not just reducible to common sense uh, human psychology, and which which we've been in contact with um, in various ways in a complicated kind of context. So you know, I'm happy to perform a pretty cynical reduction on a huge swath of the history of religious revelation, but I, I still think there's some kind of there's a signal to noise ratio there, and uh, I, I still I'm pretty confident in some kind of some degree of signal there, both in you know both in the history of that revelation and then in, in personal experience. And then, but then, but then it's like outside of that core belief, that confidence that there's something like a capitalist something. There's just a lot of doubt. You know, like what what is it? Yeah. That's where all the doubt floods in, and that's what keeps alive the seeking. Yeah, yeah. I just want to, even though I'm not a, a host, yeah, I just want to echo, echo um, as your student, thank you so much for everything you've done um, for me and and for also being willing to, to come on and put up with Andrew and Matt. I, I know it's a bit of a... Looking forward to this, too. You you um, you have a really wonderful thing here, really, really wonderful rare thing, I think, and um, it was really a pleasure and honor to be part of it. Oh, You're welcome you. back anytime. You are welcome back anytime. Yeah, and, and the same with SNS. You're welcome to come on anytime there as well. So, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah I'd, I'd be very happy to um, converse more. That's what this is. So. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, Matt, you're the host. Did you have any closing? Um, yeah, there's a 
couple of thoughts. Um, I was a huge, huge fan of the Mythbusters, and they had a soundbite, uh, which I think was actually in their opening credits, which was, failure is always an option. And I think that's the attitude that I take to opinions uh, that I have. You know, I'm, I'm always prepared to accept that the conclusions that I've come to are, are faulty or, or wrong or I have failed. So I, I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, but I have one final, slightly more light-hearted question uh, for you, Paul. Um, it, it comes in two parts. Do you watch The Good Place and do you approve of their treatment of philosophy? <laughs> That's excellent. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've had so many students come out up to me after class, usually on the first day or the last day of class, and ask me if I've watched this show and uh, I guess I should I should get around to checking it out at least at this point. I I haven't watched it yet, though I, I know a little bit about the premise, and I know is it the one of the main characters is is a uh, well, philosophy. philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, yeah, there's stack loads of philosophy uh, in there. It's just fabulous. It is. It's a it's a great show. Oh, uh, Dale. Yeah. I I should um I, I would be remiss if I didn't say two things first. Welcome back to Ask an Atheist Anything. Thank you for helping set this show up. Um, I, the, the listeners should know that this show didn't happen without you, and it didn't happen not only without you introducing us to Paul, but without your interaction in getting the time scheduled and getting the topics nailed down. And uh, and so thank you for helping produce this Ask an Atheist Anything. Oh, not a problem. Uh, Okay. And You're an honorary atheist, Dale. Welcome to the club. <laughs> All right. Not sure how to react to that, but yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, um, without rehashing the, the opening of this show, what has gone on with the personal attack against you because you have taken um, what is... I, I don't agree with the position, but I think it's logically consistent. I, and, and I'm willing to say that I would do things with much less certainty than you would. I am, I am, I stand in opposition to the sort of attack that has been, uh, uh, that has been following you around. So you are also welcome here anytime you'd like. Awesome. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and same with you and Matt. You guys are welcome to come on SNS anytime you guys want as well. Um, and, yeah, it's it's. I guess with what you're saying, it's 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 a shame that some sometimes there are people out there that like to do that kind of thing, but you just can't let it affect you. You got to get out there and teach the truth. And thank goodness, the vast majority of atheists or skeptics that I've encountered are willing to engage in in sincere conversation and trying to get at the truth. So I do recognize that there are a lot of skeptics out there that actually are interested in discussing these things and. That's that's why I do it. That's that's why I'm I'm here giving my take. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ask an Atheist Anything. Matthew will uh, close us off here in a second. But if you would like to get in touch with us, if you'd like to get in touch with Dale or Paul through Ask an Atheist Anything, you're welcome to get in touch with us by sending an email to reasonpress at gmail.com. It can be agreement, disagreement. Uh, you can even rant against us. We'd sort of look forward to that. And if you'd like to send us a voice message in the show notes in whatever podcast app you're using, uh, you can touch a link in the show notes to actually send us a voice message. That voice message uh, 
it, it goes through uh, the Anchor FM website, which is uh, which is our podcast aggregator, and uh, and it works even on Windows and Android. So uh, touch the link and say hello. We look forward to hearing from you. And uh, this is Andrew Knight saying thanks for listening this week. And Matthew, it's back to you. Uh, thank you, all of you. It's been a pleasurable uh, two hours. It's been a bit over two hours, hasn't it? Um, but yeah. Thank you. Uh, I always learn something when discussing philosophy, so I probably don't discuss it enough. If you've got a, a view, listeners, or a, a topic that you want to have, or if you, you want to throw some philosophical <laughs> stuff at us and uh, bamboozle us even further, please come on and, and do it. We'll have a fabulous chat. Until oh, next time. Oh, we are, we are, no, we're remiss. I've done something wrong. Paul? How can the listeners get in touch oh, yes, with you, you and Dale? We we can't leave that off. How how is it best to do you have do you have a blog, books? We want to publish all of that right now because the listeners need to be able to, to touch base with you if you want them to. Yeah, I mean uh, for now I have a Ryerson email address. They're welcome to kibali uh, at ryerson.ca. I guess you can link to that. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. I, I do post most of my work to. Uh, Phil Papers, which is uh, like an open open archive uh, for philosophers, uh, so a lot of my work is there. But, uh, but yeah, we'll put a link to Phil Papers because I actually like the site too. So yeah, that'll be there. Project Dale, um, this is going to drop in the Skeptics and Seekers feed too. You should give that contact uh, info. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, anyone can go to the blog site at skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com and check out the podcasts and many of the blogs along with sources that we have there. Uh, you can leave a comment to contact us or send us an email at skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Excellent. Matthew? That's it. Done. Thank you. Until next time. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks again for having me on. Uh, that's it for the show. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed the talk with my professor. He was he was a great professor, so I was uh, honored to have him come on and, and guest star. He, he's also up for coming on future shows on SNS and that sort of thing to share his knowledge. But uh, yeah, thanks again to Andrew and Matt for for having us on and having that great talk. And uh, thanks to Paul for for everything he's done for me. So have a great week, everyone. Bye bye.